Hello and welcome to episode 57 of the Cognicast, a podcast by Cognitech Inc. about software and the people that create it. I'm your host, Craig Andera. A couple of notes for you. I want to mention that Lambda Jam conference tickets are on sale now at lambdajam.com slash register.html. Uh, Lambda Jam is being held July 22nd and 23rd, 2014 in Chicago. And our very own Rich Hickey will be giving a keynote, so I'm going to go and check that out. And then I'll mention again um, that the fifth annual Closure Conj, our big conference, will take place uh, in November this year, November 20th, 21st, and 22nd. That's going to be at the Warner Theater in Washington, D.C. You can head over to closure-conj.org for more details. Uh, keep your eye on that. We'll be updating that as uh, the details get ironed out. So uh, that's it as far as announcements. Um, we're going to go on to the episode now, which is uh, a bit different. Um, I do want to warn anybody um, that uh, that we do discuss suicide and other topics related to it in this episode. So um, if you're in an environment where you wouldn't want that to come up for whatever reason, um, you might want to put on your headphones or whatever. Uh, I will say this is definitely one of my favorite episodes ever. I hope you... Um, I hope you get a lot out of it. Uh, so on to episode 57 of the Cognicast. Welcome, everyone, to the Cognicast. Today is Friday, March 2nd in the year 2014, and our guest today is Joanna Jan Halloway. Welcome to the show, Joey. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, well, no, it's our pleasure to have you on, and um, we will get to introductions in a moment for people that might not know you, but first, there's a question, and I, I warned you about this, that we always ask at the beginning of the show, which is, so we play we play into the show, we, people pick a song, our guests pick a song uh, to play us in. What would you like us to be playing? Well, I think given my musical tastes and the topic of our conversation today, uh, Tuesday Afternoon by the Moody Blues. All right, that is an excellent choice. And uh, I like it because um, although we do have a, at least one thing that we want to talk about today, and it's a very serious thing, it shows um, your awesome sense of humor. So let me introduce you um, for the people that have not, that don't know you. So people might guess by your, uh, by your last name, you are in fact the wife of Stuart Holloway, one of the founders of Cognitect. And um, in, you are many other things as well, including a mother and the host of the fabulous Hacker Bed and Breakfast, at which we are now, um, at which we now are, right? That's happening this week. But um, the, 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 the reason that um, I wanted to talk to you, other than the fact that you're a super interesting person and I always enjoy talking to you when, when I come to town, and the fact that I quite often stay at your house, so, you know, we've had a chance to talk, goes back a couple years to a meeting that we had at what was then Relevance, where Stuart uh, stood up in front of the company and said, look, there's something important happening in our life, um, our life meaning collectively, because you are 
an important part of the company. I mean, I don't know if people are aware of this, but you know, Datomic didn't kind of happen overnight. Like Stuart and and Rich, but in, in terms of impact on your life, Stuart has been working 70, 80 more hours a week for coming up on three years now, I think. And obviously, you know, as his partner in life, you've been impacted by that. So you're you're a big part of the company. So Seusted, you know, there's this person that's part of our company. And she's going through something right now. And, um, you know, I think some of us had been aware that you have struggled for, we'll get into exactly how long in the circumstances, but you struggled very seriously with depression. And he said, you know, we've, we've come to a point where we've made a decision to um, uh, have Joey be treated with ECT, which is electroconvulsive therapy, previously known, I believe, as electroshock therapy. People, people might know that better. And he just wanted to tell us that because, I mean, I know it was certainly true for me that I didn't know anything about um, certainly ECT and really depression, even though, um, like I think pretty much everyone, I've had someone close to me be affected by it. I still don't, I still don't really understand the disease or the symptoms. I certainly, however, did not understand the the treatment that you that you underwent. Now you're on the other side of that now, and we kind of discussed as I'd come to hang out with you at your house over the intervening years. Would it, you know, would it make sense to maybe? give you a chance to tell your story and your experience with this. And uh, you were game for it, and I was um, super excited about it because, I mean, we've talked before on the show, like a lot of times we talk about software. And in fact, the tagline for the show is now so- about software and the people that create it. And I can, like I said, I consider you part of that story because we wouldn't be able to do what we do if you weren't there taking care of your four kids and the house and Stuart himself, of course. <laughs> I appreciate the credit. No, it's it's absolutely true. I mean, I think any of us that are lucky enough to have a partner as, as I have, y- we know that it's like it's not a solo show. But but I think, um, you know, we've said before that people are an important part. And I think it, it's it's a really good chance to get at least one story out in the world about this thing that just very few people know that that touches on so many people's life. What I mean is that ECT as a treatment for depression, because depression touches so many people, even though maybe it's not for everyone, it's something that everyone should know more about because it, it somehow impacts them like, like the, that, that degree. So um, anyway, so that's a lot of introduction, but I, I really do want to give you a chance to, um, to tell your story. So maybe you can fill in some of the details of that kind of uh, history that we just you know really uh, summarized. So... Well, the history goes back to being a child. I actually had my first episode of major depression when I was seven, uh, which is very unusual. Um, and it lasted probably close to a year. It wasn't like it started one day and it ended one day, so I couldn't really tell you. Um, and then didn't, didn't of course, at the time understand what was going on. My parents didn't understand what was going on. Certainly psychiatric medicine was at a different place then than it is now. And then I had bouts of it throughout my growing up years, college years, but it wasn't a huge impact on my life until my senior year of college and a whole bunch of things kind of converged and I had, I guess what you would call a breakdown in the sense that I just became so depressed I could not function. And it took a good year and a half of my life away, essentially. I mean, it was just struggling to get by day by day. And that was the first time I ever took psychotropic medications. And it took a long time. I mean, it really was a long process. And after that, things were stable for a long time. And again, I was always in treatment, almost always on medications, but it was dealing with a chronic illness and 
pretty much under control in the sense of being managed and being okay. So I wonder, so I have been fortunate. I do not myself have personal experience with depression. And I think that's true for, I mean, we know that the depression affects a lot of people, but the number of people that aren't direct, directly like personally affected is greater. So, I mean, what is that, what is that like? I mean, when you say serious depression and, and can't function, can, do you mind explaining a bit more what that means? Yeah, I think it's different for everyone. So I can explain what it feels like for me. And even then, it's sometimes hard to describe. The best way I've found to describe it in the past has been like walking through quicksand, trying to live your life, but everything is hard. It's hard to get up. It's hard, it's hard to brush your teeth. It's hard to organize your thoughts. And for me, there's a strong component of suicidality, Mm. just feeling like I can't do this. I can't go on. I can't, I just want to die. And it's just paralyzingly difficult. Mm. Hmm. So um, you, you were talking about the fact that it had kind of stabilized for you through the use of medication but obviously there came a point or or there were intervening things that happened that you you had to do more than that so it felt like over you know the years in between the major episode that i described in my early 20s all the way through now i'm in my early 40s i had had brief episodes of major depression where the bottom would fall out for me and i just would feel like I could not cope. I would become suicidal. I would really be stressed out. And it would last anywhere from two days to maybe a week. But between therapy and medication adjustments and lifestyle things that you can do to help both prevent and deal with depression, we had gotten through that. And then last January, January 2013, another episode set in. And at first it felt like, you know, this happens. And in fact, it a lot of times what happens for me is that there will be a major push to an event, in this case Christmas. So, you know, you have months of um, making Christmas cards, which probably many of the listeners out there know that I'm, you know, get pretty involved in doing. Uh, yes, you, uh, I, I don't mean this is in a bad way, but whenever we get your card, my, my wife, I think, gives a little bit of sigh of, of despair. <laughs> like, this is so wonderful, right? I mean, so the, your, your Christmas cards are, are really works of art anyway. So, so yes, obviously a big deal on your part. So that's, that's a big project that then, you know, leads into you know, Christmas and planning for the kids and relatives in from out of town. And so basically everything between Thanksgiving and Christmas is just nonstop. And oftentimes when something like that ends, then there's a letdown. And so it started out as, okay, this is the post-Christmas crash and did the usual things and it just didn't get better and it didn't get better and it didn't get better. And then it maybe got a little better and then I'd crash again. And I just couldn't kick it. I couldn't get my momentum back. I couldn't get back in the groove of my life. And instead, all I could think about was wanting to die. And that wasn't an option. I mean, I have four kids to raise and a husband. And I think a big part of what's hard for people who don't deal with depression, either themselves or with somebody close to them, is at least in my case, it's not situational. There's no, well, if only we had more money or if only my relationship with my husband were better or if only my child weren't sick, everything would be okay. 
and in fact, my life is really pretty great. I mean, as you know, those of you who know Stu Halloway will say, I have the best husband in the world. Really? Wait. <laughs> Joey Ann Halloway. Okay. Yep. I guess we're talking about the same person. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> no, but, Stu's awesome, really. I'm just joking, obviously. But, you know, I mean, and of course, our marriage has its ups and downs like all, but I, you know, I think we're pretty solid and we have these four beautiful children and um, we're blessed with wonderful group of friends and many of them happen to also be co-workers which is really a nice putting together of you know your whole life is one thing and there was nothing that if you told me I had you know a, a magic wand and could grant wishes or whatever that I could say if you do this I will feel better there was nothing and I could not get better and it made it really painful, not just for me, but for the whole family. Um, I mean, we have tried over the years to protect our kids from my episodes of depression, particularly when they were littler, because it was hard to understand. As Hattie and Harper have gotten older, they understand it a little bit more now. But when it goes on and on, it's not something that the kids can you can hide from the kids or keep from them they understand their mom is sick and um, it's a lot harder for them to understand than physical illness because it isn't as clear what's going on right right and, and I imagine um, it's tougher for you as well because there's like nothing you can point at I mean you know if you get a cut on your arm it's like a, this is bleeding and I've seen this before and whereas I mean, I'm projecting, right? I mean, I, again, I don't have direct experience, so please excuse me if I and correct me if I say things that are wrong. But it would it would seem to me like it would be frustrating for you as well because it's the same thing. It's like why, where can I where can I put the band aid essentially, right? Yeah, and you very much feel there's a huge component of guilt that goes with it, which uh, then reinforces the depression because guilt and depression are very closely related. So you're depressed, you can't do the things you normally do, then you feel guilty that you can't do those things and it becomes a vicious circle. And you don't have any outward wound, you don't have the support from friends and family that you might have in a different situation. So if you had cancer, people would be making a you know care list and bringing meals or helping or driving your kids places. Um, if you are depressed and you are asking for that help, it basically just, at least to me, seems like you just are lazy or you're, you know, why can't you pull yourself out of it? Um, what's, what's going on? How do, and, and how do we treat it? So that's, that's tough. And one of the things, and maybe this is jumping the gun a little bit, but one of the things that was the most profound part of my experience with ECT was it was the first time in my life that this illness was treated just like it was any other illness. Mm -hmm. So you show up at the hospital, you check in, and you're sitting there with people who are checking in to, you know, have their you know, knee operated on or to have a scheduled heart surgery or anything else. You know, there are people with all kinds of things going on and you get treated just like any other sick person. And that is not usually the experience of being treated for mental illness, mm -hmm. whether it's depression or any other mental illness. Um, and that was an incredible experience for me to, you know, walk in and have the nurses say, you know, here's the hospital gown, let's start the IV. And it was 
a medical treatment and it wasn't about what was going on in my head. Right, except in a very physical sense, right? Like there's an actual part of your body that's malfunctioning and we can hopefully correct or, or at least adjust it. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, sorry, I'm laughing because one of the lights just flickered, not because of anything you just said. <laughs> we're, we're, we're actually sitting in your basement right now in this uh, storage room, so uh, it's a, an interesting, interesting surroundings in a way. Well, actually, I was thinking, um, and we do have a remarkably big storage room, in part because of hosting the Hacker Bed and Breakfast, most people don't have, um, you know, 18 sets of sheets <laughs> right. and um, pillows and, you know, catering things that we could take the show on the road. Um, but I also thought about that this is where my baggage, my literal baggage is. In what sense? Um, well, this is... Um, where all my stuff. Oh, you know, oh I like, see what you, you know, mean. So we're surrounded by the kids' baby clothes that are outgrown and, you know, three shelves worth of Christmas decorations and another one of, you know, Easter stuff. There's a, there's a lot of stuff in here. Do you, but do you connect that somehow to, I mean, is that, is that, is there some sense in which you connect that to the depression at all? Or is it just, you know, just kind of, here we are, here's Joy's life all around <laughs> us. And, uh, you know, um, okay. So, um, so I guess one of the things, let's, I want to get to ECT a little bit, but I guess maybe I want, I want to jump ahead to a question that I would ask you later because I think it might shape some of our conversation. So you can always tell a big event in somebody's life when you can talk about before and after. So without diving into too much into your experience of it, and we'll go. I want to go to the decision that you came to, to use this treatment. Is it one of those? Is there a before and after ECT for you? You know, I thought there would be. And in fact, when you first asked me if I would be willing to do this um, podcast about the experience, I said, yeah, but let's wait until I'm finished. Right. And it doesn't feel like there was a distinct end. Um, we didn't say, okay, now we're done with treatment. Um, we did 26 treatments over a period of a couple of months. And it wasn't really a clear decision, now you're better, let's stop. There were a bunch of factors that went into the decision. And the depression was improved, but it was still, um, my mood was still very much up and down and not really stabilized. So I feel like one of the hardest things and one of the hesitations I had in doing this podcast is I don't feel like I can say it worked or it didn't work. I know it worked to some extent. I'm here, I'm functioning the my mood is certainly way different than it was at that time. You look great. I mean, you know, I, it's an audio format, but I, I can tell you, uh, you know, I've been here quite a bit, and um, you know, you you definitely seem to me be better than than many of the times that I've seen you over the last, uh, I guess, year and a half now. Oh, thank you. And I do feel a lot better. I feel like we now are on the other side, but it isn't a distinct end the mm -hmm. way you might have your last chemo treatment or you have the heart surgery that solves the problem. Uh, it, what, there isn't a clear delineation. You know, I mean, it's the real world, right? And I, actually, that's one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is, um, I mean, so I, I think it doesn't even really need to be said, but let's say it anyway, right? We're not sitting here trying to give anybody medical advice, right? But anecdotes are an important part of the human experience and um, we're, we're not in a story, right? And it, it's not all black and white. So it's, it's I, I wish the best for you, but, but of course, you know, with something as serious, and I think if I'm correct in my understanding, as, as not well understood as depression is, then I guess, I, I don't know. I mean, is it, I get, let, let's come back to that actually, because I would maybe ask you, based on some of the research that you've done, what typical outcomes are based on your understanding. But let's, let's go back for a minute. Now that we've done the punchline, you know, um, 
what 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 was the decision leading up to deciding to use the treatment um, like? Well, it was really m- driven by me. My, um, I, you know, like many people with serious mental illness, I have a psychologist and a psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. And my psychologist was really against it. He did not have a sense that this was a good idea. I'm the one who first brought it up and said, I think we might need to do this. I just, I always knew that it was kind of, well, not always, but I had for a long time known that it was something that we might have to do at some point if if the depression was out of control and couldn't be treated with medication. My psychiatrist was in favor of it. He said that he feels like it's not used. I, I don't want to, it would be misspeaking to say he didn't, he didn't feel like it was used often enough. The way he put it was, if I was in the position that you're in, it's the treatment I would opt mm-hmm. for. Um, that it, people are so hesitant because of the stigma and the, you know, one flew over the cuckoo's nest image of this treatment that they don't even consider it. And it can be very effective. It is in fact effective a huge percentage of the time at a much higher rate than medication treatment. Hmm. So you, you, you had been aware of this treatment and you just got to a point where you're like, that's the, the next thing to try? Well, the story is actually a little bit more interesting than that, in that about 15 years ago, 14, 15 years ago, we had a very close friend who went through ECT. Uh, she had um, a very rapid onset severe depression that included psychosis and she went through a course of ECT and was you know a close enough friend that we were there and involved in helping um, as much as we could and at that time I was not aware that this was a treatment that was still done and I was really sort of almost mad because here she was getting this treatment and she was going to get over her episode of major depression in a matter of months. Um, whereas I lost a year and a half of my life or more when I had that episode of major depression in my early twenties. And so it was an introduction to the treatment. Unfortunately for our friend, while it helped her depression, it caused major memory loss. Mm. And memory loss is the biggest side effect and the biggest downside to doing ECT. Uh, The memory loss is not usually as bad as hers was. Hers was quite profound. And Stuart and I had said we would never do that afterwards. It was just not something we would consider. And when I first brought it up to Stuart as I think this is maybe what we need to do, he was taken aback, way taken aback. Like, how could you even suggest that after what happened to our friend? And I said, you know, at the time we, we thought this treatment had really not, had been a failure for her in the sense that she had this profound memory loss, which then led to its own other complete set of problems. And as in my case, where that I described earlier, she didn't have a distinct, now she's better. But I said to him, let's look at our lives 15 years out. She's thriving. Mm. Her, her life is just, you know, she's doing wonderfully. I, you know, I, I don't want to go into too much detail because I want to guard her privacy, but she's doing really well and I'm not functional. And I saw sort of a light go on in Stuart's eyes, you know, like, oh, I didn't think of it that way. And I said, obviously we can be cognizant of the fact that these memory issues are a potential problem and 
and take it one treatment at a time. But I think at this point, it's worth it because it's better to be foggy or not remembering a lot of stuff than dead. It's like it's a it's really it's a life threatening disease. I mean, it really it really is when it's when it's as severe as what you experienced. I mean, um, yeah, yes, okay. So so you know you came to the point where you're like you know it's risk of death or risk of memory loss, and you know as severe as that can be and as debilitating as that can be, you know in your case you decided that that was that was the risk. So at that point, how did you move forward? Um, I was given a referral to the UNC team. They have an um, ECT team and met with a psychiatrist who runs that group um, to confirm what my own psychiatrist had thought, which was that I was a good candidate for the treatment. And they explained the way they, the way they do it and the way it works and said, yeah, you know, I think we can go forward. Now, I have to say it is a little bit hard for me to tell you too much about the treatment or that period of time because I do have some memory loss and it's much more typical unlike my friend who had an atypical response where she lost a tremendous amount of time mine is pretty much just around the time of the treatment um, but I can't tell you exactly you know I met with I met with this doctor on Monday and on Thursday I had my first treatment some of that stuff is vague um, that wouldn't be vague for me if it were a different kind of a a, a medical procedure. Do you remember anything about the time? Like, do you remember a room or the equipment or anything like that? Oh, yeah. No, I definitely, I mean, I had 26 treatments. So I remember, you know, the experience and what it's like very, very clearly. Could you walk us through that? I mean, I'd be interested. Sh- sure. So we made the decision. I mean, one of the stresses in our life is time. You know, we have sure. four kids and sort of you know, working his tail off, trying to make this, you know, and and I I just want to be clear, it's not just Stuart, Justin, Rich, you, and a whole team of people are working really hard. But it's, you know, it's stressful um, trying to make a company grow. And yeah, and um, and I I will say, thank you for the credit that you gave to me, but I, I don't work the way that Stuart works, right? He is at the very tip of the pyramid of people putting in hours. And and you mentioned a few of the other people that are doing that, but, you know, uh, he's working his butt off. And like I said, that's aside from the fact that I think this is an important topic and we're lucky enough to have this this little podcast and be able to get the word out and maybe maybe a few more people can become aware of just things that are true in the world. Right. It's, a, you know, it, it's part of the cognitive experience. Right. All of these all of the all of the husbands and wives um, and children right, are affected by the work that's going on. But I think Stuart. You know, the Datomic team, really, especially, I think. Um, there's hard work going on, on the consulting side, too, but th- that, that side of the house is really, they're really digging in and have been for quite a long time, including this period that you're talking about. So, Yes, so it was, um, the reason that we started going there was that I made the decision that um, I would ask my, my, one of my dearest friends, Victoria, to take me to my treatments. Um, you have to have somebody drive you there. You can't drive after you've had a treatment, and they won't do the treatment if you don't have a person there with you. So, for example, you couldn't take a taxi to mm-hmm. your treatment. And I felt like it would add such an incredible element of stress if Stuart were to be missing a half day of work three times a week for an unknown amount of time um, that... I wanted to protect him. He went with me for the first treatment, and I think somewhere in there there were a couple others where my friend Victoria wasn't able to take me, and so he took me. But primarily, I, I went with her. 
and actually she like me is not a great morning person and also has four kids <laughs> okay. so we actually worked out a system where Stuart or somebody would drop me off at the hospital and I would go and check in and as I said that was just one of the most profound parts about it was I was checking in the same way I would be checking in if I was having you know knee surgery or a pacemaker put in or you know cart I don't know any number of of things and then I would go up to the unit where they do the procedure and you walk into a big room that has a nurse's station in the middle kind of you know what you'd picture from medical tv show or whatever and lots of I don't know what you call them little rooms that just have a curtain um, but an alcove I don't know what the word is either yeah yeah so but it's you have a wall on either side but it's you know closed on three sides you change into a hospital gown and they start an IV and one of the few things that does sort of ring towards the psychiatric is they come in and they um, ask you questions to make sure um, what you know that you're aware of your surroundings and where you are and that kind of became um, funny to me because <laughs> the nurses would ask the same questions every time so I start answering them before they asked yeah. so you know they would say okay I'm gonna tell you three words and in a few minutes I'm gonna ask you to repeat them and I would say apple table penny <laughs> <laughs> so the nurse have a pretty good sense of humor about that and you know one of them would start giving me different words and then another would just sort of shake her head and say I know you know where you are and what's going on and then you fill out what's called a Beck, what, what, a, what exactly, it's called Beck something, and it's a questionnaire about depression. And it allows you to, it, it gives you a numerical score um, of how depressed you are. And so you fill that out, and then you, when it's your turn, they roll you back into the room. They give you propofol. Um, which puts you under for a very short amount of time. A lot of people are now familiar with propofol because it's actually what um, killed Michael Jackson. Yeah, I've had it, and it's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> it really is good stuff. I mean, I, obviously I would not recommend anybody self-medicate, but that is some really, really great medicine. Yeah, I, I joked a couple times that the treatment was worth it just for those few moments That's as right. you're going you're, under. It's or just, and when you're coming out for that matter. It's really, yeah. Anyway, so let's, we sound like a couple of uh, stoners over here. But. <laughs> Yeah, well, so that's, you know, what they put you under with, and they give you um, succicoline to paralyze your body. Um, So you're having a grand mal seizure, but your body doesn't actually seize, except they put a blood pressure cuff uh, tightened around your ankle so that one of your feet just twitches. It doesn't actually, it's not like it's having a massive seizure, but it's twitching so that they know that you are indeed having the seizure. Now that part, uh, the basically the last thing I would hear them say is like sucks certain number, and that was how much they were giving me. Um, and then you'd wake up, probably at most ten minutes later. I was usually being rolled out of the room when I woke up, um, and then they you had to stay for some amount of time to make sure everything was okay. They take out your IV, and you go home. So do you have any, are there any, I mean, so memory loss, we'll talk about that in a minute, but are there any other sort of physical experiences associated with it, or, or is it just, I was out, now I'm back, I feel physically the same? Uh, you feel a little tired afterwards, like you might if you <laughs> had. Yeah, no kidding. And um, I struggled some with headaches, um, so it was interesting because particularly having, you know, 26 treatments, they could 
manipulate things a little bit here or there, tweak it. And so they started giving me um, migraine medication uh, went, you know, before I left and other things so that the, the headaches would not be as severe. Um, and that's a common side effect is to have headaches right after the treatment. Um, so the rest of the day is quiet. And actually, in some ways, I wonder if that wasn't the best part of it for me was having three days a week where somebody else was in charge of stuff because mommy had had a treatment. Um, and, you know, the kids would come home from school, but somebody else had to pick them up because I couldn't drive. And I would be, you know, in bed reading a book or watching a television program or whatever, and they'd and come in. Guilt-free because the doctor said you're supposed to do this. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so it forced some rest on mm. me, which I think in retrospect was part of what I needed was a break. Mm. Um, I mean, I, it's more complicated than that, but I think that was part of it. Mm. Um, so it was actually not unpleasant in that sense. That the ho- It sounds considerably better than, say, a trip to the dentist can be. <laughs> yes. Right? I mean... Yeah, no, and the, you know, the nurses were very nice. The staff there was, um, you know, just, it was a pleasant experience. I'm not saying it's something you're dying to go do. Oh, I wish I could go have another treatment, right. but it is not an unpleasant thing. Okay. So you're, you're going through these, uh, these treatments and, um, so 26, I understand is a pretty large number. Most people would go through considerably less. So can you talk about your experience with the disease, like over the course of the, I mean, because I imagine after the first one, you had to have felt like some degree of hope, right? Or maybe even like a really large degree of hope. And, you know, I mean, I, I remember having some conversations with you and I don't think, I don't, you're an intelligent person. I don't think you were expecting that after the first one, you come home a day later, oh, wow, I'm back to the way I was when I was, you know, 17 or whatever. But but, you know, I mean, there was some progression. There was some sort of experience through that period. How did that go for you? One of the things that is helpful is doing the Beck assessment. When I went in the first time, I don't remember exactly how it scored, but my I was right at the top mm. of, you know, I think it's 60 possible points, and I was in the 50s of, you know, 60 being the most depressed you can be based on this scoring. And... Within about two weeks, I was back at a, I was at a 19. Hmm. So could I have told you that from my own assessment? I don't think so. But when I actually sat down and answered questions about how I felt, about I feel like killing myself, I don't feel like killing myself, I have hope for the future, I want to engage in doing things, it just had really, it was a pretty quick change. And then it there were definitely diminishing returns. So we did more and more treatments and it didn't get me as, you know, much improvement from there. Um, And then I had kind of a dip in the middle where the depression went up again. And so my numbers on that score were up again and more treatments did bring it back down. Um, And a lot of, and as I said, a lot of that time is foggy, so I can't tell you exactly how it worked. I, I actually think it would be interesting to hear Stuart's uh, take okay. on this whole thing, because he, I'm sure, has much more information about that period of time than I do. Cool. Well, maybe we'll have to have him on sometime, and, uh, may, or maybe get the both of you back sometime, and, uh, and you guys can, because you guys are actually pretty funny together. He's a, you know, he's the sort of guy that um, I imagine right? Knowing him and knowing you and knowing what a great relationship that you guys have, which anybody that has ever seen you together can tell. 
there had to have been some jokes in there somewhere about here, Joey, can you hold this light bulb or, or whatever, <laughs> right? I mean, I imagine there was some of that going on. So Yeah, I'm pretty sure he, um, on more than one occasion, thought I could charge his phone. <laughs> Jesus, Stuart. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, as you know, I, we both take things, all things, with a lot of humor. And yes. we just, you know, he would he would come in and say something outrageous or say something you know about something having happened I'm like when did that happen and he had just made it up to test and make me like think that I had forgotten stuff (laughs) (laughs) I'm like this is not nice um but I think that's part of coping with it I think also it was helpful for our kids for it not to feel like this big scary thing that you know we can be sort of lighthearted about okay mommy had a treatment today but it it's okay. Yeah. Well, that's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on, right? Because I think by talking about things, right, rather than hiding them away, we make we make them I mean, this is a medical treatment for a medical disease, right? But but there is all you don't go to the store and get a Hallmark card that says I'm sorry, you're depressed. And there's other things like that too, you know, I mean, for example, uh, miscarriage is something that affects a lot of people, but there's no social um, framework around that for even acknowledging it, right? Like you don't call up your friends and say I had a miscarriage. You might tell your really close friends, or depending on the person you are, but sort of the social contract around that, um, I, in some degree similar to um, to depression, is just it's just we don't have you don't know whether I mean to put it simply, you don't know whether it's polite to ask about it. And so I think it's great that you were able to talk about it in front of your kids, and and you know, it's it's really good that you guys have the relationship you do because knowing Stuart, I'm not sure he could have stopped himself from saying stuff like that. Well, it is interesting. He did not ask me before he told the company. Oh, that, really? No. He oh, did I not did not ask know me. That. Now, I think he probably just knew me well yeah. enough to know that I would be fine with that. I've always been pretty open about my depression and talking to people um, because I do feel strongly that it is stigmatized in a way that is completely unfair and that it isn't different different than many other chronic illnesses in terms of what you're dealing with and it shouldn't be something we have to be ashamed of um, and so I felt like it was it was okay to tell people and it's part of why I'm willing to go on this podcast and talk to people about it in general because I don't think I should have to be any more ashamed of needing this treatment than if I had, you know, needed to have, you know, a C-section or... Right. Knee surgery, like you said. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, The difference being that if you hurt your knee, you're not likely to die from it. Right. (laughs) So it's a much more serious disease. I mean, cancer maybe is a better analogy, right? Like we have lots of very sophisticated treatments for cancer. You can come out and say, I have cancer, and people are like, oh you're so brave or whatever, like this typical reaction that we all kind of know that we're allowed to have where hopefully we're moving towards a society where that's more true, right? So um, you're exactly right. Like this, so I really, really appreciate you coming on the show. I've been excited about this episode for, for quite some time. You know, I mean, it, it's just, it's, it's, it's two things for me. It's A, it's a celebration of your success. And we've said, you know, in some, unfortunately not total victory, but your your degree of success with this, but also a depression and b ECT, right? Because I think, you know, that's an even more uh, kind of unusual or misunderstood or or poorly understood or unknown. Honestly, if when Stu mentioned it, I I don't remember, but I probably thought that pe- they didn't do that anymore, right? Let alone that it's actually an effective treatment. 
Yeah, until, as I said earlier, until my friend was went underwent it, I did not know it was done anymore. And then I still didn't really understand how much it's still done or how effective it is. I mean, it has about a 90% effectiveness rate, hmm. which, again, if you compare that to medication treatment, it's just way higher. So why don't they use, I mean, is it not used very much, or is it used and we don't know it? I mean, if it's that effective, is it is it something that comes out a lot or not very much? I don't think it happens a lot at all. I mean, well, I don't know. I don't know the numbers, and there would be, there's actually an interesting TED Talk about uh, by a, f- a former surgeon um, who actually recently just passed away, and I'm sorry, I can't remember his name, but he gave a TED Talk on ECT and gives a little bit more of the technical and statistical things behind it. So I would encourage people to seek that out if they're interested more in you know the actual treatment. I think part of it is just stigma, and I think part of it is the fear. I mean, it is basically a surgical procedure so you know you are you are going under anesthesia it is a serious thing so um, it is not something that you do because you have you know an episode of depression Mm. it and you know in a lifetime basically for me of depression it's something that we came to one time and I don't know if we'll go back to it ever or not Mm -hmm. Um, I hope we don't need to but given my experience I highly doubt that I will live the rest of my life without another prolonged episode of major depression. It it just is probably not in the cards for me. And whether or not I would choose to do this in the future, I, I don't know. But I think that it's people are just, I think doctors are hesitant to uh, recommend it, probably in part because it's unknown, par- partially in, par- because, in part because there are some serious side effects and also it takes them, it's passing along the patient to a different doctor. Mm. So it's basically saying, I couldn't treat you. I, I couldn't make you better. And I think doctors are reluctant to do that. They think, okay, I'm going to try the next combination of medications. I'm going to do the next thing. And I think most patients are not looking for the kind of sort of all-encompassing or you know big guns treatment that I, I had. Mm-hmm. So you said that um, you don't know, you know, if you did encounter another episode of major depression in your life, and I've got my fingers crossed for you that that's not the case. But you know, I mean, I'm we're the same age, right? We're like within a month of each other, and uh, you know, I think we both know that anything related to your body does not tend to get better from this point and forward. Um, and it is a physical thing, right? Like it's your brain is a part of your body. So uh, I'm talking like I know what I'm talking about. But I really obviously don't. But, um, you know, it seems to me like there's reason to expect that all of us are going to experience more and more trouble as we age. But so, so you know, you don't know if you would do it again going forward. If you went back in time to the, you know, to yourself two years ago or maybe even longer, right? Would you say that you would advise yourself to go through it? Like was it was it something that you would repeat this time? Yes. Yes, I think that first of all, it it was important. First of all, I think I was really in danger of dying. Mm-hmm. I mean, there there is no question in my mind that it was a very scary and dark place and I could not stop the suicidal thoughts and it was it was important to do something. I also think that 
it was sort of this eye opener to people that it isn't just, you know, melancholia or she's a little moody or, um, and this is serious. You know, if people are willing to put you under, under anesthesia and shock your brain into a grand mal seizure, there must be something really big happening here. And I think that that was important um, for Stuart to understand, for my kids to understand, for me to even understand at some point that this is a serious illness and that I don't have to live as if it was no big deal just because people don't normally talk about it. Right. Right. And I mean, I, I was sitting here earlier thinking about saying stuff like, uh, oh, but, but Joey, every time I would see you, you'd be, you know, you'd be so like you're such a good hostess and things like that. And how that's actually kind of part of the problem that you're talking about is that is, uh, y- you know, when somebody has cancer, right, and they like go off and like, I'm sorry, I got to sit down for a minute. That's one thing, but you know, with mental illness, if I, if I'm like, oh, but she seems so, you know, up and so whatever, she seems fine, and and how that actually creates the the environment of of expectation of of no real problem that you're talking about. It's really tricky. Like, I mean, I, you know, I, I like I want to say these things to you, but at the same time, I'm thinking about whether that's actually, you know, perpetuating the 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 problems that that you're that you're mentioning about this about about this illness in particular and about mental illness in general. I think it's hard um, to know the right thing, and at different times I would say some different things are right. I I will say that when I'm really depressed, I don't want to see people, um, and so I'm sure there are times where you've come and stayed here and you've barely seen me, mm-hmm. um, or you know, seen me to say hello and talk for a few minutes, and then I've disappeared again because when I'm in that place. I just can't face people, mm-hmm. um, particularly not people who are part of my everyday life, um, because I can't put on, you know, the happy facade, or I can't be the person I normally am. So it's it's difficult because people probably don't know it about me if they've just met me um, or just know me casually, or or I've told them. Right. So. So let's talk about the kind of the, I think maybe we touched on this briefly, but let's continue the, the uh, chronological tale here, right? Like the, you got up to treatment 24, 25, 26. At some point you came to the decision, or someone came to the decision, I guess, um, that we're done. How did that play out? It was interesting. I really, as I said, going and having the treatments was almost pleasant in mm-hmm. some ways. And then at some point I became terrified Hmm. and I I to this day I cannot tell you what made that happen but I just got to where I was terrified to have another treatment and I had one or two where I was feeling afraid and then I was just I talked to my own doctor about I don't know why but you know there hasn't been any problem but I just feel really scared like terrified to go in and have another treatment and he said maybe that's a sign to stop and let's just stop and see how you do and so we stopped and I did okay for you know quite a while and so that was the end of treatment and again it was as I said there wasn't a clear distinct ending in the sense that we knew that that was going to be the end we just decided not to do them you know I had one scheduled for the next day and I called and said I'm not coming and didn't schedule another one and you know a week went by and two weeks went by and you know and then several months had gone by and I hadn't had another treatment 
So you talked about memory loss being the the major uh, side effect. Um, and <laughs> first of all, thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about all these personal things. And please, if I ask you a question that you just don't want to share with everybody, don't don't. Um, uh, but have you had any like memory loss in the aftermath, or is that you lost memory during that time? Or so I feel like my memory has been impacted long term and and it was interesting i had 16 treatments with zero memory loss Hmm. none whatsoever and it became a running joke between Stuart and me because he would say something and i'd say no 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 it's da 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 and i would turn out to be right and you know he would he was like you're supposed to not remember you're you know you you're having ect (laughs) and then and then i started having some minor memory loss one thing that I understood from having been through that major depressive episode in my early 20s is that depression in and of itself can cause memory loss. Hmm. And I have some pretty major memory loss during that period of time. So blaming the ECT 100% for the memory loss is a little is probably a little bit unfair. But I have struggled over the last six months or so with remembering things. Um, whereas I used to be the kind of person who didn't necessarily need to keep a date book. If I had an appointment, I remembered it. If I, you know, I remembered everybody's name. Stuart and I will often go to a party and he'll say, remind me of, you know, who I'm going to see and what their names are and who their kids are, or, you know, whatever, because his brain doesn't work that way. And I have struggled with that. But um, Stuart will say my memory post ECT is still way better than his memory. <laughs> right. Um, and the other thing I I would say is that as I complain about memory loss, many people have said to me, "Welcome to your 40s. This is not this is not ECT. This is just you know your memory starts to go." Mm. Yeah. Well, I, I wonder a little bit. I, I I I can't say that I have additional problems with memory in my 40s. At least not yet. But uh, I, it's crazy busy time of life, and you have four kids. I only have two. It's such an insane period. And I, I, you know, like I hate to complain because I know that there are people, for example, people who have more children and who are suffering with a major, potentially fatal illness, that have it much harder than I do. But you know, but it's a busy, busy thing to be, you know, in the middle of this, this part of your life where the kids are doing so many things, but still need so much help that uh, I, I could easily I could easily in my case at least attribute difficulty it's maybe less memory loss and just hard to keep track of everything so that's interesting but it's not like it's not like you wake up in the morning and, and you're you're like I don't remember yesterday like that that level no, of no, not, not, that level not of side all. effects no um, and really the time period of the of of the treatment was a little foggy. I'll, I'll tell one story. We have a, a handy woman who does a lot of work for us um, named Shelly. And, and you've met her. We yes, sometimes call her great. our sitcom friend. <laughs> yep. She's sort of always around. Yeah. And uh, one day we were coming back from, she often helps me with you know the big Costco runs with people who have been here for the Hacker Bed and Breakfast or other events know that we sort of run a big life around here. And she said, oh, there's that mailbox that I replaced. And I said, Oh, I didn't know you were working for another family in the neighborhood. And she just gave me this look and said, are you serious? And I said, what do you mean? And she said, you don't remember me replacing that mailbox? And it turned out that during the time I was having the ECT, our nanny had reached behind her while she was driving the kids home from school and 
crashed into these people's mailbox. Mm. And it had been this whole long thing of going back and forth with the people. And we live in one of those neighborhoods where you have to have a specific mailbox. And we ordered the mailbox and it wasn't the right one. And so we had to send it back. And then they sent the wrong size poll. And and Shelly was the one who was dealing with all this coming and going. And after she reminded me, I remembered. Mm. But when she just brought it up in passing, it was it was not there. And then I kind of went back and I found the email chain between the homeowners whose mailbox we knocked over and myself about, you know, you know, I'm sorry this happened. We're obviously going to pay for it and da da da. And it came back, but it wasn't there at the, on the tip. And it's definitely the sort of thing where you wouldn't have forgotten it under ordinary circumstances. No, it was a whole extended right. thing. Right. You know, it's like, how could one mailbox be such a pain <laughs> right. in the neck? But um, so, no, and that was part of why she was just blown away that I didn't remember it. Mm. And as I said, once I started to put it together, the pieces came back in. But um, it's been interesting, actually, because I was having treatments during you know, the time, the period of time around last year's Hacker Bed and Breakfast. And what's been a little bit funny for me is that I can't remember sometimes if I've met someone. And I'm not that person. I always remember having met someone and could tell you their name and what we talked about in our last conversation and, um, you know, something I sort of pride myself on. And that period of time is really foggy. So there have been a few people who, in the last few days, I've said, nice to meet you. And they've said, oh, we met before. And I am mortified. Well, Um, welcome to my life because I I seriously – well, actually, so we've joked before about Stuart Sierra – Mm-hmm. He, he, yeah, he's, I'm bad. He's really bad to the extent where we're on consulting engagements together. One of my jobs is to stand beside him and whisper people's names into his ear that he's met several times before. <laughs> so, uh, so yes, I'm sorry. I don't mean, I don't, I, you have such a good sense of humor that I feel comfortable making light of your very, very serious problem, but you I, know, you're operating well above where I'm at right now in that particular respect. <laughs> Well, I mean, my biggest thing is, and and again, I hope everybody will hear this podcast and so they will know. And part of the reason why I want to be completely open is I realized that I wasn't going to be able to remember who I told I had ECT Mm. to or not if you only tell a select group (laughs) of people. Good point. So you might as well just tell everybody. How extremely Um, practical of you. (laughs) Because, you know, that way I can say... I'm sorry, I don't remember. It's and you know it, we joke in the family. It's called ECT brain. You know, <laughs> it's you know like sorry, I I don't remember because I wouldn't want anybody to think that I forgot them. Um, you know, particularly as you know in this particular thing we're going through, being hostess this weekend, I wouldn't want someone to think that they had been a guest in my home and I didn't even remember who they were, because this event is really special to me and every person who participates is special and important and I wouldn't want anybody to think that. I wasn't aware of who they are. And so only in the cases of people that um, I met last year during this time would it be, you know, in impact. Cool. Well, we all have our fingers crossed so hard for you, Joey. And it's, 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 I'm so happy every time that I see you when you, when you appear to be doing well, even though I, you know, understanding having talked from you today that um, that's not an everyday thing for you necessarily. Um, we do, we do have a lot of, I can't imagine anybody meeting you and and not wishing you well. You're just that type of person. So it's it's really cool to hear that you've had some success and we have a lot of hope for you. Um, we probably should start to wrap up, though. Um, but before we do, we have plenty of time. If there's anything 
that we didn't talk about that you would like people to know any, on any topic? It doesn't have to be about ECT or depression or anything. If you want to tell embarrassing stories about Stu or or whatever, but particularly if you do have things that you want to communicate about the stuff we talked about today, I would I would please take the mic and talk for as long as you like. I would just encourage anybody who is struggling out there to reach out. There have been plenty of times when I have Googled, please help me, I want to die. Um, and there's not a lot out there. Sorry. No, that's all right. Take, it, take as much time as you need. You don't get, there's not a lot of online help, actually, mm-hmm. which there are times when, even though I have a treatment team, I have a doctor and a psychologist and I have a husband who understands the situation, um, I don't feel like I can talk to anybody, And I, but I could type. Um, and there's one page I've found over and over again that talks about if you're here, you're obviously feeling desperate and like you want to die, but you must have some hesitation because you Googled, right. you know, you searched for help. Right. And... Um, so just stay with me long enough to read this, and it goes through a bunch of stuff. And what I would just say to people is that there's there's treatment, there's help. It doesn't mean you're going to wind up having to have your brain shocked like I did. But um, if you need help, reach out to somebody. If that person isn't helpful, reach out to someone else. If you want to call me, call, you know, it's joey.halloway at gmail.com. You know, I, I, I think that we should live in a world where this is – something that you shouldn't feel like you're ashamed to get treatment for or you can't but you know unlike cancer or a heart attack one of the symptoms of the illness isn't the inability to get up and go to the doctor or get up and seek treatment so I would just want people to understand that and I would be happy to talk to anybody about my experiences in more depth if they have questions. Do you have any advice for those of us who are on the on the fortunate other side of this illness um, about reaching out to people that we suspect might be in trouble? I mean, is there is there a, a right or a wrong way to say, I think you might need help. I think you might be unable to ask for it. Is is there something I can do? You know, I I would not want to speak for all people with mm-hmm. mental illness sure. or, or even all people with depression because everybody's experience is so different and people have different personalities. Not everybody who would go through this is the kind of sort of open book that that I pride myself on being. So I, I don't really feel like I can say anything other than for all of us to treat the people around us like they're important and to let them know that we care about them and you know all the things that we would want regardless of whether someone was suffering from mental illness or not. Mm-hmm. And I guarantee we all know somebody that it is because you're you're far from the first person I know <laughs> that has had this problem. You're the most open, which is great, um, but you're not the only person, including someone in my family. So, um, yeah, I, it's that's, yeah, you're right. I mean, be, be nice to each other, right? Like a lot of great things fall out of that, right? And we've talked many times on the show about finding these little ideas that everything else builds on, and, and that's... You know, now that you say it, 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 it seems obvious to me, and that, that feels true. Well, I, what I found is it's okay to dis- – I mean, you know, God, I'm married. You, you can disagree with somebody <laughs> or be angry at somebody but still have them know that you care about them and that they're important. And that can be your spouse or your male delivery person sure. I mean, at all levels. But that, you know, if you treat people that way, I think we'll all, we, we will all be better served if we can aspire to that at least. 
You're very wise. And I can hardly think of a better place to, to end than there. I will say that I would love to have you back on and talk about any one of the other super interesting things that I know that you have. I mean, we didn't really talk much about the Hacker BNB, and I know you put a ton of work into that and have some, some good stories. And, and like I said, embarrassing stories about Stu are always extremely welcome, and I'm sure you have a great storehouse of those. So maybe you come back on sometime and, uh, and check in with us again, and, and we can talk some more. That'd be cool. I would be honored. All that right. would be fun. Well, no, it would absolutely be our honor. There's no question about that. Um, so before we go, of course, there's another uh, uh, last question that I ask you, which is the song that we would like to play the show out on. What have you got for us? Well, I think given our conversation and where we are ending, I would be appropriate to play Simon and Garfunkel feeling groovy. All right. Love it. It's fantastic. Uh, haven't had any Simon and Garfunkel on the show before, so always a good addition to the uh, to the many, many, over 100 songs now that we've played for people. So very, very cool. Well, Joey, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been the most wonderful conversation about the most horrible topic that I've ever heard. Not the horror being the disease, of course, not your um, not your brave struggle with it. Because, you know, that sounds kind of maybe a little bit stilted or whatever, but I really think that's true. Like, just, just anyway, I'll leave it at that. But, you know, it's been really great conversation, and I'm so glad, you know, we had this idea. We've been kicking this idea around for a long time. I'm so thrilled that we did it and that this information is out there. We're not unfortunately able to reach everyone in the world, but you know, maybe there's a few more people now who who just know a little bit more than they did. And that's just a very, very cool thing. So thank you so, so much for coming on the show and talking about all this. Well, thank you for having me and thank you for recognizing this as an important topic. I, I really appreciate anybody, it. Anybody that, that, anybody that knows you, I would think would be able to see the same thing because um, it's just that's, you're a special kind of person, Joey. Thank you. Cool. All right. Well, we're playing it out. We'll thank everybody for listening. This has been the Cognicast. You have been listening to the Cognicast. The Cognicast is a production of Cognitech Inc., whom you can find on the web at Cognitech.com and on Twitter at Cognitech. Our guest today was Joanna Jan Halloway on Twitter at Joey Halloway. That's J-O-E-Y-H-A-L-L-O-W-A-Y. The Cognicast is produced with help from Alex Miller, Alex War, Damian Mack, David Shalimsky, Jamie Kite, Justin Getlin, Lake Denman, Luke Vanderhart, Lynn Grogan, Mark Phillips, Michael Fogus, Ryan Neufeld, Sam Umbach, and Stuart Sierra. Episode cover art is by Michael Parento. Audio production by Russ Olson. Our producer is Sandy Ezel. I'm your host, Craig Andera. Thanks for listening. Slow down, you move too fast You got to make the morning last Just kicking down the cobblestones Looking for fun and feeling groovy What you know when I come to watch your flowers growing Ain't you got no rhymes for me Do it and do do feeling groovy